0: Excited to be here this morning. We're going to hopefully open back up to Matthew chapter 12. We have been slowly but steadily going through the book of Matthew, and if we remember, the kind of launching point for this was the verse out of Luke when Christ is addressing his disciples and he's talking about what it was their duty to do. Okay, what he called their duty in serving Christ and serving the kingdom. And that launched us into kind of evaluating what it was that Christ has called us to do. And we wanted to approach it from the point of view that if we're going to be Christians and claim to be Christians and profess to be Christians, then we need to do and profess and claim all that Christ did and that we should live our lives according to that. I know that seems kind of elementary, but I think that if you are on the same page as I am, that as we've been going through this, there's a lot of points where... I think our perceptions and our cultural kind of framework butts up against what Christ taught us to do. That we have a natural or a cultural bend to kind of go in a direction that is opposite of the direction that Christ has called us to go. I think the most pivotal of moments that that is seen in the scripture is when Christ told us to love our enemies. That's such a... Elementary thing and we think about that and we say that and we talk about that But the way christ lays it out really brings to bear a lot Of things that are going on in our culture today and how opposite it makes us think And I think of all things that's the one that I always go back to out of all these 12 chapters We've been going through. That's the one that I have returned to the most going. Okay, christ told us to do this How are we measuring up? Christ is is telling us that this is a specific and defining marker of what it means to be a follower of jesus christ you say oh well i thought it was that i just can't watch r-rated movies well he doesn't say that he says love your enemies well which one do i claim and say oh but i don't watch R-rated movies. that's what makes me a christian no you don't you can't substitute that and say well i can still hate my enemies as long that's you're getting right back to what the pharisees had come up with getting right back to what the jewish teachers had done That's what Christ was addressing in those times was you have heard it said this way, but I'm telling you, this is the way that God intended for you to live and conduct yourselves. And so then we fast forward and we've gone through all these 12 chapters and we've looked at all these different aspects. And last week we kind of looked a little bit about uh, the healing of the man who was blind and mute out of Matthew chapter 12. And we really did, did kind of land heavy on just that healing and what it meant. And so when we were talking about that, we were speaking to the fact that in this example of healing, that Christ was addressing both a physical, okay, the blindness and the muteness. He was addressing a very physically expressed problem. And we spoke to the power of God in that. We spoke to how Christ is able to accomplish great things in the physical realm. That whether it's sickness or even death in many occasions... Whatever it may be, there is nothing that is too powerful, too strong, too much of an issue that Christ, God, and his power cannot overcome. And so we glorified God in that last week. And that, I mean, you think about that. When we talk about how the Christians, as they followed Christ, developed an attitude that I will never die, okay? Now, obviously, they didn't take on that attitude because they realized that somehow they were going to, they're going to be like vampires and never die, okay, or zombies and never die, all right? They're not, that's not their attitude they were taking, but their, pow, their view was the power of Christ in the ability to take them on to glory eternally or to resurrect them in the end. It's the same in both ways. He had the power over death that you could say you will never die. That's that lively hope that we just sang about. That though I may physically perish in this world, either I live eternally in my spirit or the resurrection one day will bring me. So either way, we have a view of death that shows that God is more powerful than death. That big kind of elephant in the room that everybody worries about. And in fact, Paul will speak to that and say that it was the power of death, the fear of death that kept us in bondage. But Christ has delivered us from that fear by conquering yeah. So you have there's of all the things to be worried about there's one off your list. How about that? You know, now I wish he could have added in there like fear of spiders and fear of water and fear of heights and that's not really expressed in the scriptures wish it was. Had a psalm to go to that that'd be great. But if we look back in Matthew chapter 12 we talked about that with the healing of the blind and the mute man that the physical is not too much for Christ to handle. The physical is not too Uh, too big there's no illness no sickness no problem no addiction no lust problem no whatever it is there's nothing that is physical in this world that Christ looks at and says guys I'm sorry this is this is out of my scope of practice I don't have this ability you know good luck to you I hope you figure it out Beyond that, though, it also addresses the the spiritual side of it. Because what we saw with that story is that the man was possessed of a devil. And that's why he was mute and he was blind. So we see that the physical was a characteristic or an attribute of the spiritual problem. And we spoke to that, that there is a lot of spiritual problems that manifest themselves in physical ways. And we spoke to this because, you know, there's a lot of, even in the mental health industry and things like that, we talk about this, and we've said this before, you know, we sometimes, I think, rely too heavily on the medication, and that's really... And that's in everything. I mean, we're always, and and that's the mentality, okay, of nearly like 95% of America. You get a cold or a sniffle, you're immediately going to the urgent care. Why? Because you need a shot of something and a pack of something because that's what I need. You do not have an acute steroid deficit, okay, Um, nor do you have an acute amoxicillin deficit, all right? It's not, you you don't require that, but that's our mentality. There's a fix for it. If I go there and I get this shot, I feel better. I don't want to deal the, you know, seven days with the sniffle or whatever it may be. I want this knocked out quick. I've got stuff to do, places to go, people to see. Okay? So we have this kind of quick fix mentality to it. And that sometimes gets us in trouble because then we're like, well... Everybody needs this. Everybody needs to take this medication. Everybody's got this problem. Well, there's a medication for that. And, you know, coincidentally enough, there's a whole industry that's good about selling you the things that you really didn't know you didn't need, okay? Um, You know, that goes from everything from drugs to TVs to cars and exercise bikes that become, you know, clothing, hanging objects and things like that. You know, I mean, that's, that's this industry that we have in America, okay? But there's probably a large portion of it that is of a spiritual nature yeah. there are cases in the bible and, and you know you could argue about the timing of all this you could argue that maybe at this time there was more of an expression of the demonic power in this case and it's matching the expression of jesus's power in this case. i mean you can kind of go into that and say well maybe today there's not as much of that that goes on and you know who knows maybe so we don't have an answer to that at this point I will tell you there's plenty of examples from people even just being bent over with arthritis that Christ attributed it to being an oppression of the devil. That a woman who was hunched over from arthritis from being weighed down in that way and he actually attributes it to a bondage of the devil. So I mean it's an interesting correlation. How much of the physical is a manifestation of the spiritual? Now, without getting into all that, and I know there's plenty of people who would curse the devil for their arthritis, okay? Um, Live in that industry all day, all right? So I I get that. But if you just think about, though, a lot of the common problems that we deal with, you you can most definitely tie them back to a spiritual battle. Depression. Depression typically will come from a lack or a an inability to see the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. That the depression that comes upon us usually comes from a source of, I don't feel like there's any other way. I don't feel like there's any hope. I don't feel like my life is as fulfilled or as, as meeting the potential it's supposed to meet. And so therefore I struggle to be happy, to be joyful, to see a purpose in getting up the next day. Depression, sadness, anger, all of these things can come from spiritual origins. Obviously, we know things like addiction and lust and all those things. Those definitely come from spiritual origins. But there's a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff that we see today that can be tied to that. Bulimia, anorexia, eating disorders, things like that. All of that can come back to a child of God who cannot see all that they have in Christ. And so this affects us all. It affects us all on a daily basis. You don't just need some kind of clinical diagnosis to tie it back to. I mean, this is a a daily struggle, a daily battle for everyone. I'm not going to ask a show of hands, but I would just say how many of you at one point in time in your life could say, I probably would be diagnosed with depression. I probably could be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. I probably could be diagnosed with a... With a, whatever, a helplessness, a failure to thrive in that way. I think probably all of us would agree with that. You say, well, where does it come from? Does it come in the water? Is that where we got it from? So you have to tie back then and say, well, the logical source would be a spiritual warfare, a spiritual battle, a spiritual bondage that's trying to take me down and keep me from the true potential and glory that Christ has for me. So you see this man who was healed. You see Christ's power over both the spiritual and the physical in this, how he relieved this man. I mean, and it was a beautiful scene because when you see it there, Christ just walks up and is like, hey, you're done. You know, out. Get out of here. All right. So you, you it's, it's a quick and instantaneous, miraculous healing showing immense power. And that's sometimes why I think we kind of we read it and we, you know, we just kind of read right over it because it's so quick. We didn't have anything really fancy christ didn't make him like go down to a pool called Siloam and wash his head five times or you know he didn't spit in some mud and massage it. i mean he didn't do any of that he just said hey you're done out okay i go like, oh, well, okay that's a little quick we like you know we like the drama don't we, we like the drama we that's why we watch these like three hour epic movies we like all the drama and the heartstrings being pulled and we like all the emotion and quick and easy things like this sometimes we just kind of oh yeah that's pretty yeah pretty fantastic But we kind of landed last week talking about, no, do you realize how powerful this was? Do we realize how much of a difference this was? This man was blind and mute. And now within an instant, within a blink of an eye, he's opening his eyes. He's seeing the world for the first time. He's seeing everything around him. He's seeing all the things that we take for granted and we will walk by and we ignore. He is soaking it all in in a moment, and not only that, but then he is able to express himself for the first time. That's a fantastic miracle, and it showed the power of Christ, and so much so that the people around him they saw it and they said, "Is this?" This is verse twenty three. All the people were amazed and said, "Is not this the Son of David? Is not this the Messiah?" Is not this the prophecy fulfilled? Look at what he can do. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto him, or unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me Scattereth abroad. Now, this little section of scripture is um, extremely interesting. Uh, And there's a lot, I mean, this is, it's one that is encompassed in both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or in all three of those. I don't guess that's both. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, okay, you know, there's times when certain things are only expressed in one gospel or another. This one is expressed in three, it's a common story okay it was a very important moment and the teaching about it is very interesting as well if you look over in luke's account in verse I mean in chapter 11 it will say that it, the phrase in there that he didn't include in matthew but it says but he knowing their thoughts this verse 17 said unto them every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and a house divided against itself uh, a house falleth if satan also be divided against himself how shall his kingdom stand because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub, and if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, I wanted to read both of those accounts because they kind of give a full picture of what Christ is setting up here. There's some really, really important considerations to be made from this section of scripture. It's interesting right off the bat because everybody goes well who is who's Beelzebub okay who is that? Where did that name come from? First time it just pops up out of the scriptures and you're like okay that's interesting. don't know who what, what, where is this coming from okay So there was a Baal Zebub okay in the Old Testament that comes from one of the gods of Ekron which is one of the Canaanites. So he's a Canaanite god called Baelzebub, but then which meant Lord of the Flies, if you've ever heard that, if you've ever read the book. Okay, um, but what you see here is it's actually a Jewish kind of idiom that was developed. They don't really know where, when, or how. Probably when they were over in Canaan's land and kind of took on some of their stuff with them. Um, there you see them start using this phrase of Beelzebub as being this captain of the devils, the leader of the devils, okay? He'd be synonymous with Satan himself. And so you see that phrase come up from there. So they are really, and, and as we all know, as Christ kind of explains to us, they are giving the credit, okay, to this miracle, giving the credit of the power and the ability to do this, to Satan, basically. Yep. And we kind of d- talked about this as you've gone through this and you've seen account after account after account of how Christ has been kind of interacting and getting uh, kind of going to blows with the Pharisees here, these leaders of the Jews. You continue to see their hard heart displayed. Okay. Now, look, we have kind of some rivalries that go on in this state, as we well know, okay? There's things that we don't agree on in other levels, bigger levels, okay? But you really have to be pretty doggone vicious when you start taking things that are obviously good and miraculous and blessings and life-changing events and slandering them. And the person who did them. you got to be coming from a state of mind that's just not normal. Okay? And in fact, he'll talk to these people later, like in chapter uh, 23 and other places. He'll talk to them and be like, You generation of vipers, you uh, hard hearted Pharisees, how can you escape the damnation of hell? I mean, he doesn't, he finally just gets to the point with them, he just lays it out on the line. But you can see the responses from the two crowds that are here. One's the people, okay, the masses that have gathered and seen him do this. And their response was like, I'm, I, "You know, we're not the leaders, we're not the Pharisees, we don't have perfect knowledge of Old Testament theology and everything, but isn't this the Son of David? Isn't this the Messiah? I mean, who else does this? This seems miraculous, not only the healing, but that the devils bow to his authority. You know, there's been other cases where the devils have bowed before him and questioned Jesus. You know, hey, are you going to cast us out before their time? Are you going to persecute us before the time has come? And, De- and Jesus has kind of pushed him off the side, told him to be quiet, don't spread my name, you know, that kind of a deal. I mean, here, though, the people are going, no, there's, there's something about this man that's beyond the normal. Something about this man that speaks to what the scriptures have been telling us for a thousand years, which is there's one coming who has the power. and The people recognize that. The only ones in this crowd who didn't really want to acquiesce to that were the Pharisees because they don't want to give up. They don't want to give up any of their power. They don't want to give up any of their glory. They're in a sweet spot right now. They do not want to give Jesus the credit he is due. And the reason is because they didn't want to give up their own position. They did not want to give up their own authority. They did not want to give in to someone who might have greater authority than them. But you see how Christ is laying out here for them a very logical argument. And you can read this, and it's one of those times in the Scripture where the argument is just perfect and good, and it makes perfect sense to all of us, okay? If I am casting out, I mean, number one, what sense does it make for Satan to cast out his own devils? That is kind of contrary to what you would say would be good, sound logic. Okay, If you're trying to conquer the world and destroy and reach as much havoc as you possibly can, well, why would you do this? Why are you going to help someone? Why are you going to take that? That's, that's a step backward. That's two steps back. Okay, So you're taking one step forward and two steps back in this direction. That doesn't make sense. No one would do that. Think about it in a corporate level or a like on a let's say Apple and Google. Okay, you got two big, huge kind of Goliaths of the industry. You don't see them like helping each other out, do you? All right, Apple's not going over there, going, "Hey, you know what? Our newest and greatest and best technology. Let's just go ahead, just give it to Google. Let them put it in their next phone." Well, you know, doesn't happen, does it? It's every man for themselves. They got to they got to conquer as much as they can. But here Christ is describing this warfare between these two kingdoms. He's describing these, this battle that's going on. He's describing what a house or a kingdom should be. Okay, And he also describes, if you look at that phrase where he says, By the finger of God. That phrase is only used like four times in scripture. I'm talking about from Genesis to Revelation. That phrase is only used about four times. One is here. One of them is when he's writing the Ten Commandments. One of them is when he is writing on the wall, okay, if you remember. And then the other one is when he is dealing with Pharaoh in Egypt. The magicians, and we know we know Exodus, right? We've been talking about Exodus, haven't we? Right. And so if you remember during the times when the plagues are being put on Egypt, when the magicians, who up to this time, had kind of been going toe to toe, par to par with Moses and had kind of been recreating some of their stuff. They're throwing sticks down and making snakes and all this too, and, you know, they think they're pretty solid. Once you get by the fifth, sixth, and seventh plague, all of a sudden they go back to Pharaoh and they go, Pharaoh, look, the jig is up. Right? Say, We have reached our, our pinnacle. We can't go any further, and this is obviously God. In fact, it is evident that the finger of God is upon Egypt. So that phrase is a very peculiar phrase but is showing God's intimate, powerful involvement in the created realm here. He says in Egypt, in Exodus 8, when that occurs, he was doing it in this the most powerful display of omnipotence to the Israelites and to the Egyptians at that point. So much so that when they leave out of Egypt, they go forward and all the other nations around them are going, hey, y'all need to back off this. I mean, these people, are they've got their God with them. Okay, you had all the Canaanites and everyone that they were marching through, they were backing away saying, you better just let them pass because look what they did to Egypt. It's described as the power of God in his finger. That his finger was touching the land of Egypt and causing all of these things. Well here, you don't have this grand kind of national enslavement with a deliverance theme going on. You don't have that kind of natural thing that the Israelites were going through with Egypt. And you don't have God in in this moment talking about it like He did in the Old Testament where He was like, I'm going to show Pharaoh what I can do. I'm going to show them how I am God. But in one man's life, his finger came down. In one man's life, His finger came down in this moment and delivered him from the bondage that he had been oppressed with his entire life. Now, why is that so monumentally mind-blowing special? Okay? Because when we look in the Old Testament, we look at Egypt's story and everything and Israel's story, you can see kind of God's covenant relationship with Israel and how God is blessing them and God's delivering them. And we read that story from the 30,000 elevation view that we look at it at and we can see the kind of meta-narrative of God's promises to Israel. He's going to deliver them. Here it is. You know, when we read the Ten Commandments and we in the Ten Plagues and we sing songs about them and all this stuff, okay? And we think, yes, of course, this massive monumental moment in time, okay? But you wouldn't think about that as, I guess you'd say with as much consequence when you're talking about just one individual. With one individual, things can become very just simple. You know, what does the, you know, the whole phrase, what difference can one man make, okay? What difference can one person make? What really affect, when you're talking about billions of people on the earth, Really one person. What's the, what's the big deal with that? National movements, national things, large-scale shows of power. Man, that's some, that's some stuff to really take notice of. I mean, like one person's life. I mean, what what really is the big deal with all that? Well, when you have Christ using that phrase in the presence of a bunch of Jews... Whose whole identity exists because of what happened in Exodus. Whose whole national everything. And remember, we've been talking about this in this whole chapter. They had a view and a desire for a restoration of the kingdom of Israel. The natural, physical, tangible kingdom in that way. That's what they were looking for. That's what the son of David was to do. Man, he was going to come back just like in Exodus, and he was going to touch with the finger of God, and he was going to wipe out the Romans, and he was going to establish the throne, and everything was going to be back hunky-dory, just like it was back in Exodus. Except when we go through Exodus, we realize things weren't exactly as hunky and dory as we thought they should be, but... And we kind of question what their reasoning is, why they would want that back, okay? Obviously, they've read Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and, of course, all the Isaiahs and Elijahs and everyone else who had kind of been dealing with Israel for so many years. But that all aside, that's what they were looking for. Where is my kingdom? Bring your finger and do that whole thing again. Let's have ten more plagues on Rome and let's wipe, let's clean house. Let's have our identity back. And here's what, what's God doing? All he's doing here is in one man's life delivering him from the bondage that Satan had oppressed him with his entire life. Where Really, what what kind of a difference is that going to make? What's so consequential about this is that that story, that testimony of God by his finger working this miracle in this man's life is the same story that every one of us Possesses Every one of us who have been changed by the power of God, every one of us who can attest to deliverance from bondage, whether that is the bondage of sin and death or that's the bondage of addiction and slavery and all sorts of manners of other things that we face in this world, it's the same story. You know, we sometimes want to go back and say, Oh, if I could have just seen the Red Sea, how oh I would just it'd be so great to have seen other things. In fact, if I had seen it, I would have never turned away from God. If I saw something so miraculous, so powerful, I would never waver. What I kind of argue is this: we've seen more than that. We've seen more than that. Really, let's be honest. It's just a sea that was parted. Your life has been changed. It was just manna from heaven. You're a new creation. You have been born again. Something that even like Nicodemus with all of his abilities and faculties and theological knowledge, even he was struggling at it going, how does that even work? How can one be born again? How does that happen? You know, even ask the question, which is a kind of a goofy one, but also at the same time, you're sitting there looking at the guy who's scratching his head. He's going to be, what are we supposed to like? Go back in the womb again? Well, no. Does that even make sense? How can that even possibly happen? Come on, don't ask goofy questions. Sometimes you you know they say there's no stupid questions. Well, sometimes there are. Um, But in this case, you go. I mean, that's a miraculous thing. We need to be careful that we don't lack appreciation for the miracle that the finger of god has done in our lives that we recognize how much power and beauty and things that god has done for us because if you look at this warfare that's been going on here he he identifies two kingdoms okay he talks about the kingdom that obviously Satan possesses, okay? And, we get, and you can go, you, you know, fast forward, you can go to Revelations, you can see how God allows Satan like a dog on a chain. He's giving him a little bit of a leash for a while, and you can get into that whole thousand-year thing, and we can have debates about all that, and we can really come to whatever conclusion we want to. But over and over, like in John, from chapter 12 to chapter 14, the phrase prince of this world is used multiple times, okay? There is a kingdom, that Satan rules over in that way. Okay? There is a a there is a warfare that's going on in that way. Okay? Now, the key to this is, is that when we read the story, obviously we know just where that kingdom's going to go. Okay? And we know how it's going to end. But that doesn't negate the fact that it is still here, it is still very much present, and it still has an effect on every one of our lives. This person is a case in point. Each and every one of us are a case in point. When we are, you can go and look in like Galatians chapter 5 and you'll see the things that are the manifestations of the flesh and how the flesh works in our lives. Those are part of that kingdom, okay? That kingdom that is seeking to wage war on the kingdom of God. That kingdom that is seeking to destroy, as he talks about as the thief, is here to kill and to steal, and to destroy. And I said that without doing the normal southern thing that we always do with it. But if you look at how Christ describes this kingdom and what it is about, you see destruction, you see havoc, you see misery, you see oppression, you see slavery. Now let me ask you a question. Are all of those still in existence today? Can we all look around and see these things playing out around the world? The kingdom is that kingdom of Satan is still very much present with us. Now again, the hope and the kind of other side of it that we get to see is that from John, if you go back to the John chapter 12 through 14, you'll see over and over again how God will say, the prince of this world is coming to be judged, he's ultimately to be defeated, he's going to be cast out. I mean, there is plenty of the hope side of it that we have. We're in the weaning kingdom, by the way. I hope you all know that. Amen? All right, So we all know that we're in the winning kingdom. We're in the kingdom that has the most power. As we can see as evidenced here by Christ, Christ was not stumbling over this. Christ didn't let go, whoo, this one's a doozy. I mean, even the, even the demon that Christ cast out when his disciples said, I mean, how did you do it? I mean, we tried and we, you know, and all this stuff. And Christ, you know, makes the point that this one cannot come out by, but by fasting and prayer. Christ didn't stumble at that one. There's been no demon, no power that has come up against Christ in anything we have read so far, and I'm going to break it to you, anything we're going to read any further. There's nothing that comes up against Christ that Christ goes, man, this is just, I don't know, this is a head scratcher. I don't know how to get past this one. Every one of them, he walks up with confidence and knowing that he has the ultimate power. He is God, okay? He is the word. He made the world and everything in it, and he upholds everything by the power of his word. There is nothing that is escaping his control, okay? So here, when you look at these two kingdoms, you can get a little bit concerned and say, well, man, what are we looking at? What are we a part of? What are we facing here? Well, we need to be very honest in what we are facing. I think it's again there's you can talk about all the ploys that the devil may use against us. And one of them I think very much is complacency and ignorance, okay? Complacency and ignorance. Complacency in the sense that I'm just okay with things how they are and it'll all shake out in the end, what does it matter? I'm good. You know, as long as I don't have to struggle, as long as I don't have to fight, as long as I don't have to do too much. I'm good. I'm okay. Things are good right now. I love this phrase. I talk about it all the time. I don't like rocking the boat. Leave the boat like it is. Okay? I really don't like rocking the boat because boats are usually in water and we go back to that whole fear thing. And that's why I don't like people who rock boats either. Alright? I think it comes from an honest place. But you know, you get that idea. Don't rock the boat. No confrontation. Let's not, let's not shake things up. Leave them like they are. Things are going real good right now, aren't they? On the other side of that is ignorance. Either ignorance just from pure ignorance, I just I just never knew, or as the Bible will use the phrase willful ignorance, which is a purposeful ignoring of the reality that is going on, okay? So again, we can argue and be ignorant in the sense of I don't really want to accept or face the reality that is before me, okay? I don't want to face the fact that what I'm dealing with is actual a spiritual problem. I don't want to face that fact. I like the easy road. I like the idea that if I just had the right 10-step process or if I just had the right pill or if I just had the right meditation technique or whatever it may be, I could just get by this. In some cases, it's the complacency issue. Not only am I willfully ignorant of it, but I'm complacent just like, yeah, but you know what? I think I can survive like I am. And what Christ will use to describe that is slavery. How many of us with a show of hands welcome slavery? How many of us, and again, think about from, you can now we can bring culture in. Our culture is very much independent okay i mean that is the good you the good old u.s of a all right we're going to throw off the kings we're going to be ruled by the people we don't do this whole bondage thing i mean that's just not us we will be our own people we will be the captains of our own destiny well do we understand that Like allowing ourselves to be controlled by the kingdom of Satan, to be controlled by anger and lust and depression and anxiety and all those things. We are ceding over power and control and giving ourselves up to slavery. And for some reason we're okay with that. Some reason we can say, yeah, but think about about how hard it is not to. Think about how hard it would be to not... Think about, I mean, let's just not rock the boat. It's okay right now. I have my slavery managed well. I've got it under control. I'm dealing with it okay right now. It's not as big of a problem as it once was, and so, you know. Do we recognize that those chains are there anymore? Do we recognize that we don't have to be in those chains we recognize that Christ said that he delivered us from all bondage. If you look at then the flip side of that, the kingdom of God, that's something we're very familiar with. And if you look at this phrase, this phraseology that he uses here in Matthew 13, you know, Matthew was big on saying the kingdom of heaven. All right, I don't know if you've picked that up. Go throughout all the book of Matthew and then flip through Mark, Luke, and John. And anytime time the kingdom is referred to, a lot of times Matthew will say kingdom of heaven. Everybody else says kingdom of God. Why does Matthew say that? Who knows? Maybe when we get to heaven, you can ask him why he chose that phrase. Lots of people argue one way or the other about it. But, you know, it's just used that way. Except in this verse, when Matthew decides to say the kingdom of God, and I think it's there for a reason to give us this picture of the two realities. To give us this picture of, number one, the two kingdoms, but also who is the head and the power and the originator of those kingdoms. The kingdom is of God. okay? It's God's kingdom. Or the kingdom is of Satan, and it's his kingdom. You get to see in these, this phrase the two heads being exampled there. Now, we believe as followers of Jesus Christ, okay, that we are following the kingdom of God. God being the emphasis point there. God being the one who is our authority. God being the one who is our deliverer, who is our savior. God being the one. That's that's what we look to. He is our master. As we've seen in other places and we will see in other places as Christ uses the parable At other times, he'll talk about that you cannot have two masters. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot be a servant of God and a servant of Satan simultaneously. You're either going to love the one and scorn the other or love the other and scorn the one. It's going to go one way or the other. You cannot ride the fence. You cannot be in both at once. You cannot be a follower of both at the same time you will make a choice you will choose one side over the other so when we think about that in those terms who are we following who are we looking to as our captain who is the one that is our director our administrator who's our father You know, in a kingdom situation, when you look at someone being an heir to the throne, their father is the king. Not only does he have all authority over the kingdom as being king and the sovereign of that nation, but in those instances, he's also your natural father. That breeds a little bit of a different relationship, does it? So when we think of it in those terms, again, who who do we prefer? Again, why are we... Why do we allow ourselves to become complacent in these areas? Why do we allow ourselves to look at the two, you know, if you want to think of it like that, the two options you have, okay? When you're looking at these two kingdoms side by side, who in their right mind, who are we that we would look and prefer bondage, slavery, and those kind of things over the glorious freedom that's in the kingdom of God? It's something that in my own life I always question, and I'm always sitting there keeping a count. Why in the world do I let myself do these things? Why do I let myself struggle in these ways? You no, know, it's like a theme for everybody. Why do we do that? In Isaiah 49, if you look at the two kind of the two kingdoms side by side here, and I grab this phrase because it's one that gives us the hope. And the purpose that we are looking for. Okay, so in Isaiah chapter forty-nine, and you know we've been kind of you've been kind of skipping through Isaiah as we have been going through Matthew over and over again. His, his kind of revelation in chapter in uh, Isaiah speaks to everything that Christ is doing. Okay, well in Isaiah forty-nine verses twenty-four through twenty-six, it'll say this: Shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the lawful captive delivered? But thus saith the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children. I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh, and they shall be drunken with their own blood, as with sweet wine and all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One. Of Jacob. Now everybody's like, oh man, we're talking about eating flesh and drinking blood here and all this. This is a beautiful picture of exactly what Christ came to do and did on the cross. He was our and is our Savior. And we all know that, right? What's beautiful about this, though, is Isaiah is like the only Old Testament writer that uses that as a proper noun. He's like the only one that when you go back and you can type Savior in and just do a Google search of the Old Testament, there'll be some hints here and there. There's some Psalms that speak to it. But Isaiah, there's like seven or eight chapters where this phrase, I am your Savior, I am your Savior, I am your Savior. And why is that? Isaiah is writing to a people who he's saying, you need to repent or you're going in captivity. You need to repent or you're going into bondage. You're going to be destroyed. God is going to wreak havoc in your life because you have rebelled against him. But he always kind of gives this little clue that there's going to come a day when you will be delivered. The bondage and the slavery that you are going into will be destroyed. The strong men, the mighty that have you as a captive are going to be overthrown. I will deliver you. I will save you. I will redeem you. So when we come up against this kingdom of Satan, this kingdom of the devil that we're seeing displayed in our world, okay, when we're seeing these battles that go on, I mean, we recognize that we are in a battle, right? We recognize that this is a spiritual warfare that is going on. In fact, that is spoken to numerous times in Scripture. You can go over, and we all love Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6, and we love about putting on the whole armor of God, and we love about standing against the wiles of the devil, and we talk about that, and we, you know, we draw pictures about breastplates of righteousness and all that. Why in the world does he give us that picture? Why does he give us such an idea, such a thing to fixate on that we can understand what we're involved with? Because we are in a battle We are soldiers of the cross. We are fighting a warfare, or we may not be fighting a warfare. But, I mean, all through Scripture you have this picture given. This is not a place for complacency. There are no Switzerland's in this battle, okay? There is no neutrality, in this world war, there is no I'm just gonna ride this out kind of mentality. It's either one or the other. We're either serving God or we are serving the kingdom of Satan. We are either gathering with Christ or we are against him. That is what this is the picture that he gives us here. Over and over again, telling us there are two kingdoms and you're on one side or the other. And so you get a little bit scared, you get a little bit anxious about those things, saying, man, this is some really heavy stuff. You mean that my whole Christian life is not going to be just basically skipping along to amazing grace and everything's happy and we don't have to do? I mean, that's just all I got to do? No, he says, this is a warfare. We come in on this day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We celebrate him as our resurrected Savior that he accomplished the job and says there's a battle to be fought, but I have won. There is a kingdom that you are warring against, but I am victorious. And in our own individual lives, we will constantly struggle and deal with this warfare that we are going through. But what I try and really want us to grab hold of And want us to grab hold not only for ourselves, but for everyone around us. Because if you notice too, in all of these teachings, Christ has never said, this is all just for you. This is for the individual. This is so you can feel better about yourself. This is so you can feel more fulfilled and more purposeful. All of it has this kind of outgrowth. Okay? He describes the kingdom of God in other places as a tree that starts off as a tiny seed but then grows out so that all the birds of the air can lodge within it. It's always this picture of it growing outward and going beyond the individual. But for individuals, we understand that our warfare has been fought, our battle has been won, and there is no slavery that we should be willingly giving ourselves to. There is no addiction, no bondage, no depression, no anxiety, no nothing that we can come up against and go, well, you know what, this is just something I'm going to have to deal with because, you know, Christ, obviously, I mean, can't get, no. We have the story of Jesus Christ as the ultimate conqueror. There is nothing, physical or spiritual, that any of us deal with this in in our lives that we can say, I'm without help and there's no one who can deliver me from this. We always have the knowledge of Jesus Christ as our Savior. And that's a complete and total and didn't just mean what happened on the cross. That means today, tomorrow, and the next week, whatever we face, whatever we struggle with, all of it is under the power of Christ, and He is able to save us. Amen? Amen. But also when we are dealing with other people, You know, not everybody is blessed around us to know these things. Not everyone is blessed around us to know that they have Jesus Christ as a Savior. Not everyone around us is blessed in that way. And that's why he says, you are the salt, you are the light. That is the message that we are carrying we're not going up to a bunch of people who are really good and really comfortable and they've got everything figured out. And they don't. he says, no, you're going to the people who are sitting in darkness and telling them, you don't have to sit in darkness. You don't have to be in bondage. You know, I know you feel burdened down with this. I know you feel like there's no way out. I know you feel there's not a light at the end of the tunnel, but I'm here to tell you there is. It's a big old light that's at the end of this tunnel. We are given that ministry as he's calling it in Corinthians the ministry of reconciliation to tell people you can be delivered from these things you are not in bondage if Christ has set you free you are free indeed to the uttermost so I hope that when we take these things we realize that we are we got to kind of not you know not to be whatever but we do have to kind of man up in that way and we have to accept the authority and the role that we have here okay whether we are 2 years old or 99 years old we all fall within the kingdom warfare situation we all have a battle to wage whether that is through prayer or through intervention or whatever it may be we are warriors on a battlefield we all have a purpose Okay, That purpose is not just warming a bench on a Sunday morning either. The purpose is way beyond that. God has given each and every one of us specific integral gifts that he said you are to use. And that that is for the purpose of the kingdom of God. We are all gifted in that way. We are all called in that way. We are all ambassadors for Christ in that way. So we cannot let complacency, ignorance, or neutrality creep in and try to keep us where we're at. No, that's not, that's not allowed. We are called to something more than that. We have a battle that is to be won. We have a warfare to conduct. So may we all be blessed this week to enter into that. To not just accept it as it comes along. Not to be complacent in it. But let's actually look and pray to God that God use me in the way that you would have me be used this week. Show me where the battle is. Show me where I am needed most. Guide me, Lord, to know what it is you would have me do this week to further your kingdom, to glorify your name. May God bless us to do this.